This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Let me just um, sketch this down today and give you the theme and then the homework, and she would have really liked this. She would have really liked this. Luke, the sixth chapter, verses 37 through 42 the end of our Lord's famed Sermon on the Mount. There's lots to say about all of this, but I'll just give you a thumbnail sketch, which is what Jesus did, and leave you with it. Do not judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For the measure you give, not just money, but judgment, condemnation, or forgiveness, mercy, The way you give in life, all the great religions have recognized this truism. We call it sowing and reaping, sovereignty, the image of God woven into the fabric of the universe. People on the other side of the world call it karma. Non-religious people call it what goes around comes around, but it's a recognition of a truth. For the measure The way you live and the way you give, it'll be the measure you get back. Not immediately, not always tit for tat, quid pro quo, but overall, eventually. It's the way it works. Look at the next verse. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person actually guide another blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully qualified will be like the teacher. And after those injunctions, those admonitions to not judge and the truism about sowing and reaping, he then does what he does masterfully. And it's not just a, a simple rhetorical tool for emphasis. I think there is some therapeutic measure to all of Jesus' questions. Jesus said, I need to ask you a question. And this is our homework this week, this question. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Look at the next verse. Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, how do you do this? Friend, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself, remember the blind leading the blind? When you yourself don't see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. Classically, that word was, you stage actor, you performer, you who have a face on stage and another face off stage, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. I want you to notice something about the method of Jesus here. Two injunctions, a prohibition and an admonition bookending this little sermon. 
So he tells them, don't do this, and then he ends with, do this. But at the heart of what he does, Jesus says, good religion is not just about what you do. Good religion is really, if you go down, down, down in the depths of your soul and ask yourself, why do I do that? Because if all you do is find yourself externally manipulated by a teacher like me or a friend or a family member or a religious structure, it'll be like topical ointment put on the surface. It'll kill the weed right down to the ground, but nothing will happen to the root. So Jesus was not above or below giving admonitions and prohibitions. Don't judge and take the speck or the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. He did do that, but more than that, he said, if you really want transformation, not just superficial religious structure, if you really want transformation, listen, he looked at us and he said, I already know. But you need to ask yourself, Everett. I mean, that's what he did. He said, why do you do this? And, and if there was a quick response, well, he'd be like, uh, this is too deep for a quick response. This is too deep for a preacher to give you the answer to that. I've thought all week long about why I tend to do that. And there are reasons, and I'm not going to impose mine on, your, on you. Yours may be similar to mine, but there's lots of reasons. But you want good religion, follow Jesus in this, and spend some time this week, Rob, just asking yourself, why do I do this? Not just what am I doing, why? What, what's, that, what's that go back to inside of me? So let me just throw this out here for you. I was reading all week long material on this moat and beam subject. And um, it led me to some articles about holier than thou attitudes. And I, I ran across an article by two professors, Nicholas Epley from Cornell, used to be at Harvard, and David Dunning, who was at Cornell, and I think Dunning is now at University of Chicago. And I've run across these names before. These guys are some pretty well-known social psychologists. They both have spent a lot of time studying moral psychology. And this article was in uh, the journal called Personality and so the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. It's a big, biggie in academic, uh, the, health sci uh, the mental health sciences. The article is titled, now follow me, the article is titled, Feeling Holier Than Thou. And these two well-known social psychologists did a great study. It's about 30 pages, a lot of double-blind studies that kind of get boring, but the proposition, the hypothesis, and the conclusion are well worth the read. You should go online and find it. But these two studied the frequently noted and documented phenomena that is repeatedly demonstrated, not just in life, but has been demonstrated academically in study after study. And that phenomena, I'm going to give you a quote from them, that phenomena that, that pervades human life is this. People on average, I'm quoting Dunning and Epley, people on average tend to think they are more charitable. People on average tend to think they are more cooperative, more considerate, more fair, more kind, more loyal, and more sincere than the typical person. People on average tend to believe that they are less belligerent, less deceitful, less gullible, less lazy, less impolite, 
less mean and less, less unethical than the same typical person. Even outside, I saw some studies, even outside the bounds of morals and ethics, when it just comes to uniqueness of performance and effectiveness in life, one particular study asked university professors, do you believe that you are an above average professor? Now, if there is an average professor, that means, if I remember my statistics right, and Dr. Chris Licky helped me this morning, there are 49.99999, with a bar over it, percent people who are above average in any particular thing, right? Because average is sitting on 50. So you're asking university professors, do you think you're above average? 94% of university professors said, yes, I am above average. Even more telling and bothersome is they were asked, how many professors do you think are below average? Well, the mathematical, statistically correct answer is 49.999%, right? Just barely less than half are under average. They not only were bad with statistics, they were bad with spiritual development the same 94%, the same group that yielded 94% think they're above average, they, it was either 32 or 34% they believed of their peers are above average. These two, Epley and Dunning, begin this scholarly paper with a quote from Luke 18:11, telling, where a religious man stood in the temple one day just like this and looked around and said, I just want to thank you, God. And he gave a long list of sinners. I thank you that I'm not like the extortioners, the swindlers, the thieves, the murderers. I'm here. This is my praise song to you today. I thank God I'm not like those people. And as he looked around, his eyes fell on one particular guy across the room who was a tax collector and had come to some point of conviction about his deceitful life and pounded his chest and said, oh God, I'm a sinner and I have cheated my own countrymen. I don't know if he was caught. I don't know if he was facing prosecution. I don't know if he just had an epiphany, but he was there squaring with God in the temple about his life. And as the religious man saw him after his long list, Pastor Bucky looked at him and said, yeah, perfect example. I thank God I'm not like this man. Jesus then asked a question, which of these two do you think went home from the temple that day square with God? And he didn't even answer. It's just you answer that question. After Luke 18, 11, they began their article. They continued the beginning of their article with an anecdote the anecdote was on February 7, 1998, on the dawn of the impeachment, the attempted impeachment or impeachment, depending on how you see it, of President Bill Clinton. On the dawn, that, that tragic moment in our history, CBS News conducted a poll asking Americans how interested they were in the steamy details of their president's sex life. The results of the CBS News poll suggested that people were not very interested. A scant 7%, one out of 14, less than one out of 14 said, I admit it, I'm fascinated by the details. 
50% reported. You remember 1998? You remember that? Monica Lewinsky, you remember all that? 50% of us reported to, to the polar, pollsters we are completely disinterested and could care less about the details. In spite of the fact that the National Enquirer and the Star sales went through the roof that week, we all reported that we were completely disinterested. <laughs> Interestingly, that same group of people were asked to evaluate the interest of other Americans. 25% thought others were fascinated. 7% said, I'm fascinated. Three and a half times that many of us said, these people sitting beside me in church, look to your right and left, they are fascinated. Ask how many do you think are completely disinterested? 18% said, I think people are completely disinterested. Again, three times. I'm completely disinterested, but I don't think all these people sitting around me at church are. People thought their own ambivalence was unique. People thought their own sense of decorum was special to them. People supposed that the hysteria surrounding the Clinton affair was being heightened by the vulgarity and the silliness and the voyeurism of others, but not me, not me. When presented with this set of dissonant statistics, one polling expert, a renowned polling expert, when presented with this, his quip back was telling and immediate. He said, well, it is the great contradiction about us, isn't it? The average person believes that they are a better person than the average person. Again and again, these studies that I looked at yielded the same results. A disparity between how we view ourselves and how we view others. Every study reveals that we do see a moral gap between us and the average person. Epley and Dunning, though, at the beginning of their study, they ask an important question that I didn't see in any of the other studies. And I'll quote them again, and I'm almost done. Just follow me here. Epley and Dunning said, when people make logically impossible predictions about themselves in relation to others, the question is, which prediction is in error? Are they overestimating themselves or are they underestimating others? 7% said, I'm fascinated. 93% said, I'm not fascinated. How close to reality is that? In blind polls, it was found actually when anonymously asked with no strings attached and posed safely, some 25% actually said they were fascinated. The question in all of these studies that's never asked until Epley and Dunning, are we overestimating ourselves or underestimating others? Because an error either way, I mean, if we're supposed to be here on level ground as human beings, if we underestimate them, a gap's produced, right? And I'm holier than they are because I've underestimated them. If they are here and I'm estimating them properly and I overestimate myself, guess what? I get a gap. It's a different gap, but it's the same gap, and I'm holier than they are. 
Turns out, through Epley and Dunning and many studies that have been done since, turns out we actually, drumroll please, are overestimating ourselves. We are not underestimating others. Turns out we are generally fairly accurate in our, predictions, in our prediction skills concerning other people's morals, ethics, and behaviors. We're right on target predicting other people's behavior. But we consistently, on almost every turn, overestimate ourselves in the very same situations. And I think Jesus concurs with that. Because at the end of his message on judgment and the moat and the beam, Jesus doesn't get to the end and say, get the two before out of your eye, and when you do, you'll see that you were completely wrong about your brother's eye or your sister's eye. That's not what he said, was it? He said, get the two before out of your eye that's making you blind, and he said, when you get it out of your eye, you'll look back and you'll see them completely differently. No, he didn't. He said, you'll be able to get the speck out of their eye that you saw. Your blindness isn't about them. They had a speck then, they have a speck now. Your blindness is about who? You. Some religious leaders did not overestimate a woman's behavior. They did not underestimate her morality one day when they caught her in bed with someone who wasn't her husband and they knew that adultery and infidelity could rack a society and a family and children could hurt and people could hurt and they drug her out of bed, stripped her to her waist, probably didn't have to strip her, she was probably already stripped, they just drag her out and they bring her before Jesus and they throw her at his feet and they say, caught her, here's the text. And I do want to say this about our Jewish forebears. Though these things were in their text, we have no sense that they actually ever really lived out these injunctions to any severe level. These things were horrible ideals, but they really didn't stone a whole lot of people and kill a whole lot of people, thank God. There was a gap between their harshest literature and for many people who are in Islam, there is a gap between their harshest literature and the way they live. For some extremists, there's no gap. Our forebears in the Jewish family had some really harsh things to say about what to do to a woman if you found out on your wedding night she wasn't a virgin. You not only took her to the gate of the city, you also took her parents and you could burn them there. That's in our Bible. Our Jewish forebears actually did not live that out. Thank God that sometime we live lives better than the most rudimentary superficial reading of the text. But in this case, they drug her out and they had the text and they had rocks in their hand and they said, and the interesting thing is that Jesus didn't look at them and say, you have way underestimated her morality. Actually, she didn't do this. Actually, she did. And it's not that bad when you hear the whole story. Jesus did not get on to them that day for underestimating her. Adultery's bad. I'll give it to you. As a matter of fact, at the end of the story, he looks at her and says, don't do this anymore. You're killing yourself. You're killing your family. You're killing other people's families. Don't do this, sis. But there was a more valuable lesson. He looked to those who held the rocks 
And he said, I'm not going to argue about the speck that you found in her eye. He said, the, the only problem I got with this whole deal is not whether or not she deserves punishment. My problem is, which of you have clean enough hands that you can actually throw that stone? As a matter of fact, he was very, it was very poignant when he said, whoever of you thinks that he is without sin, you cast the first stone. And that first stone thing is very important because the first stone was generally measured and it was often thrown by a leader or an offended party. That was the ideal because the first stone was generally big enough that if it hit them square, it was an anesthetic act of mercy. And with their skull cracked, they would slip into subconsciousness, unconsciousness, and the rest would simply bleed them out and finish the job. But the first stone, that was the one that carried the weight and that was the one that struck the death blow. That was the one that yielded the greatest scream the most visceral reaction. And Jesus said, I, I'm not here to defend what is in her eyes. I just need to know which of you can throw that switch. And the Bible said, from the oldest to the youngest, they did not change their mind about the gravity of infidelity and adultery. They changed their mind about their own life. And they said, she may deserve it, but I don't deserve to throw. Jesus concurred with statistics yielded 2,000 years later that in most of these studies, no, all of these studies, participants of life consistently, grossly overestimate the likelihood that we ourselves will act in selfless and altruistic manners, whereas we continually predict that others will fail. And our prediction of others converge most closely with reality. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, he who knows others is learned. He who knows himself is enlightened. Tales of Miletus, who I have not read primary literature on, but I have heard the name and read secondary literature for years. Aristotle actually looked back to this 7th century BCE philosopher and said he was the beginning of Greek philosophy. Tales said, when asked by an interlocutor, the question was, what is most difficult in life? And Tales, as an old man, was said to recline and to mull over that question, what is most difficult in life? Tales responded, to know oneself. Tails was then asked, what is the easiest thing in life to do? He smiled and immediately said, to advise another. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> Jesus said they do have specks in their eyes but you don't know yourself. He said, do yourself a favor and stop judging. Do yourself a favor. Take care of what's in your own life and heart. Do yourself a favor. Do yourself an even bigger favor. Antonio, he said, before you do that, or while you're doing that, I mean, clean it up on the outside, but while you're doing it, 
somewhere in the night, somewhere in the homework of the week, ask yourself, why do I do that? Why? I remember as a little boy when I would go to the pantry and I would get that empty box of cereal and I'd throw it down and say, Sherilyn, Stevie, how do you put the empty box? I just knew there were some Captain Crunch berries and I dug out an empty box and I was so indignant, Thelma, so indignant. How could you do this? What an immoral human being it is eat three bowls of crunch berries or frankenberry and put an empty box in. How cruel can you get? I come in here starving to death. And, and I remember as a boy being so angered by that. And I remember as a boy one day, May, when I finished the bowl of Fruit Loops and I took that empty box and as I set it on the shelf, Stan Jr. is 16. He's learning how to steer and he's learning how to hit a brake but he's learning something else about life because as we were coming in this morning to church, somebody pulled out in front of me and he's sitting there beside me. He doesn't drive with Nina in the car. We're brave, but not crazy. <laughs> and he says, can you believe that? And I've been telling him because he's got that, he's got that thing, you know, it's all a competition. It's like NASCAR, you're, you know, and I said, yes, I can believe that. He said, does that not annoy you? And I said, a little bit, but I'll tell you what annoys me the most about that is I do that. And he said, that's a really good answer, Dad. That helps me. Good. Why do you do that? So the homework this week is just this, and I'll send it out to you tonight. Just little, little stuff for you to work on through the week to help you live with this question of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is like, I'm the emergency room. I'll patch up your morality right now. Stop it. But if you really want to change your life, as you leave the emergency room, he sends you home with a prescription, and that is, why? What is at the root of this in me? So do this. Watch yourself watch people this week. Don't just watch people. Watch yourself, Mark. Watch people. We all do it. You will learn what they look like. You have an opportunity to learn who you are. You will learn about their outside, but you have the chance to learn about your inside. Watch yourself watch people this week and notice what you notice. What does it say about you? And my son leans back in his car, in his seat today, in the front seat beside me, and the question is no longer, why do idiots pull out in front of one another? The question is, why does that make me so angry? And how can I do that to other people and then be so incensed when they do it to me? I tell my kids all the time, I don't perfectly live it, but I tell them, when treated improperly by your estimation, 
the first question is not, why are they doing this to me? The first question of a spiritually healthy person is, oh Lord, do I do this? When somebody's not looking me in the eye and listening to me and they're on their phone and I want to say, please listen to me, do I do this? Why do I notice the specks that are very real and my estimation is right? Why do I notice the speck in their eye? How can we be so accurate in estimating others, Bill, and so far off in estimating ourselves? I am not going to give you the answer to that because it's a whole lot more complex than I could share in a sermon. Find your answer this week. You and Jesus spend some good time together, and it'll be a week well spent with the Lord. Amen?